Hi, everyone, and welcome to Accelerator Insider, where we go behind uh, the scenes and talk to the folks who are building accelerators, venture studios, and incubators to learn about how they think about business for today and the future. I'm so excited today to have the Justice Tech Accelerator with us. And so uh, with that, we have two folks joining us today. So Maya Markovich and also Drew Emerson um, are the leads of this program. So thank you guys so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, so I'd love to, to be here. Thank you. Oh, yeah. We had a great conversation like last week about all the things that you guys are doing. And, and it's a really interesting, actually, niche and topic. I think when people think accelerators, they think like deep tech, space, you know, like, but they don't think like legal tech. <laughs> and they don't think uh, justice tech as well. And so I think it's just a really timely conversation about the intersection of both of those topics um, in this kind of new burgeoning world of accelerators. Um, and everyone can look on your LinkedIn and kind of read all about you. So we're not gonna kind of do all of that here. Um, but I would love to maybe just start with um, just some kind of simple uh, questions about, you know, the program as well. And so um, maybe we can just start in with you, Maya. And since um, kind of you, you really led this work, can you just start by sharing a little bit about like, why this, why this program, um, kind of uh, what drew you to this topic and why you wanted to create this? Well, I should start by saying I'm a recovering lawyer. Uh, actually went to uh, my alma mater is uh, UC Law SF, formerly known as Hastings. Um, and uh, and <clears throat> after practicing for some time, it became very clear to me that technology was going to be uh, the defining uh, you know path forward for for the legal industry, but how difficult it was going to be um, to actually affect that change in a in an industry that is so, um, based in precedent um, and and mired in in the past in many ways, um, just in in the way that we do our work. Um, I uh, I also you know I, I went to law school in the first place because I wanted to make a broader social impact, um, and so both of those things kind of came together where I realized that technology really is a as an access to justice issue in and of itself. Hmm. Um, uh, the legal tech industry is you know still a baby. Um, I would say we're a good ten. 15 years behind ad tech or fintech. Um, and so uh, I, you know, I founded the uh, Justice Technology Association about a year and a half ago. Um, when, and what we are is a startup. Uh, well, we're a, we're a trade association, but all our members are startups. Uh, we're a startup ourselves as well, 100% uh, volunteer driven. But we are an organization that collaborates with uh, startups, investors, courts, clinics, uh, academia, journalists, um, everybody uh, that really is very focused on um, closing the access to justice gap. And just by way of uh, scaring everybody, I guess, <laughs> can say that the, the market is immense, almost infinite. Um, most, uh, you know, anywhere from 92% to 95% of Americans that need legal assistance or need to navigate something in the legal system, uh, either get not enough or not any um, legal assistance. And we believe that technology can and should be part of the solution there. So everything came together for us um, when uh, when we started brainstorming with LexLab. I was gonna say, actually, so my next question was like, so how'd you meet Drew? <laughs> like, <laughs> so how did this come together? I think we met. How, I think we met because uh, I was. Uh, I met somebody from 
well, I mean, it's my, you know, as, as a former, as an alum of the school, I was really interested in what was going on with Lex Lab, which is, you know, a much broader program actually than just the accelerator. So um, Drew yeah. should, Drew's much better place to describe all the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Lex Lab is a center within UC Law SF, and we started about five years ago. Uh, so UC Law SF, as the name suggests, is in the middle of San Francisco. And about five years ago, our chancellor, David Fagman, uh, realized that there was this sort of burgeoning legal tech field popping up. And he wanted to be a part of that. He's like, we're perfectly geographically situated for that. Why aren't we doing something here? So he decided to start this center called Lex Lab, and he tapped one of my colleagues, Professor Alice Armitage, to, to start this up, and she brought me over to direct it. And we really have three missions. Uh, the first, since we're in law school, it's educational. So we're rolling out new classes all the time. We have a, a concentration in technology and the practice of law that our students can graduate with. We put on big events. So last night we had an event on how lawyers are using generative AI, and we had demos from some of the big players in the space. And then the last thing we decided to do was launch a legal technology accelerator. And the reason we did that is we have a, a unique challenge at our school because we're a standalone law school. We don't sit in a bigger university, so I can't run down to the business school or the CS department and try to get those folks to come over and teach my law students. So we decided to bring entrepreneurs and technologists into our community to work with our students. So that's the, the origin story of Lex Lab and Maya was sort of perfectly situated at that time. You know, she, as, as she mentioned, is a recovering lawyer, but got into the legal tech space uh, and we quickly tapped her knowledge and expertise and she serves as one of the advisors for Lex Lab. So oh, I think we met probably awesome. right when that started. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a beautiful, that's a very synergistic, beautiful story. And as a yeah. law, I think every person that watches this, particularly all uh, we do get a lot of folks from like academic side are like, that's beautiful. An alum came back <laughs> and participated in a meaningful way. Yes, great story for the <laughs> for the uh, the annual uh, newsletter and so on. Yeah. So that's that's beautiful. Um, so I'd love to know. So there's actually a lot of to your even with this relationship, you know, being kind of a partnership. But there's also a lot of other stakeholders involved in the accelerator. So you have generator, you have village capital. Can you just talk about like everyone's role, kind of? why they're all participating and kind of like what their role is in supporting the accelerator. Uh, absolutely. We're, we're super excited to have all these folks and, and Maya is the one who brought this together. So I've run a legal tech accelerator for five years since Lex Lab started. This is the first year we've concentrated on justice technology and, and really trying to find those entrepreneurs who are trying to address the justice gap in this country. Uh, and Maya with the Justice Tech Association has broad, broad connections. And she's the one that brought Generator and Village Capital to the table. Um, mm -hmm. And it's fantastic. So those, those organizations bring a couple of things to us. First is curriculum. So we have Generator, we have for, for this program, it's pretty light touch. We have weekly meetings where we bring a speaker in. So next week we have somebody from Generator coming to talk on building your MVPs. Mm -hmm. um, later in the semester, Village Capital is coming and Village Capital is going to be talking about how do you know when you're ready? What is your investment readiness level? Um, and then how do you capitalize on that, right? Mm -hmm. So both those organizations are coming in and bringing their curricular expertise, but they're also helping us source companies. So we have a couple companies from each of those organizations, which, mm -hmm. you know, the space, as, as Maya said, it's pretty nascent and, mm -hmm. and pretty small when you've been in it. 
Um, but it's, it's really hard, I found in my fifth year of this accelerator, to source good companies. And these organizations have brought really fantastic people to us. That's awesome. I mean, one of the things, you know, we do at Accelerator Insiders, you know, we just, we track accelerators across the U.S. And so there's probably about 4,000 of them. And one of the biggest things we hear from folks who want to use our database is like, I'm looking for deal flow. Like I might not be in the network to get on Harvard's or Stanford's or whatever's list, but like, you know, and I might know of the 10 big climate accelerators, but there's probably like 70 more that I have no idea about. And if I'm trying to actually kind of source the best candidates, I need a wider pool to source from. And so similarly, yeah. it sounds like this kind of that kind of partnership helps do some of that for this program, particularly because it's such a niche as well. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Maya. Yeah, I, I was going to just agree. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, it seemed very scattered. Uh, when we when we launched JTA, um, you know, last February 2022, um, but we've grown, you know, in in the course of the year to over 40 members, um, all of whom were delighted to hear from each other, <laughs> you know, and then just just um, so bringing together the community has been a real value in and of itself, and then the ability for us to kind of and, and also some of our members have uh, are in the accelerator as well, um, and uh, what Village Capital and Generator what they find of value uh, for our for our accelerator is that there's next steps uh, for the startups that they're working with um, to to continue to build their networks to continue to get the mentorship and the community that they need um, and so we have a lot of um, you know there's obviously a lot of overlap but I will say that um, justice tech has you know in the last year and a half has become um, a topic of conversation that is not niche any longer. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a more and more of an understanding that that there are, um, I mean, <laughs> I guess it depends who you're talking to. Um, <laughs> for those of us that kind of are, are looking at access to justice issues and impacted populations, I mean, this is an another very specific way for impact investors particularly to get involved and they themselves are very much looking to build their pipeline. We get a lot of outreach there and so our goal is at uh, you know at our organization is to build these companies, is to help support them in their journeys, um, and this is just one one other way that we can do it. Um, but they're, they're, the connections that they make are you know second to none in terms of um, mission aligned investors as well as um, other organizations. Gotcha. And that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense given the current climate or even the climate for the last couple of years. I mean, and I think you're talking a lot about underrepresented groups, but I think we can more broadly say like everything from AI to privacy to ownership, to, there's all these other topics, right, that it's it, that are included in the kind of just justice uh, legal conversation. Yeah. Right. And then you add the technology piece. So the question becomes, OK, I get the justice part. And I get the legal part. Like, what's the tech though? Right? Like, what the, what's the tech well, going to be? And so, like, give you some thoughts on like yeah. what kind of things you're seeing. It, that's so interesting that you say that because um, you know we're seeing more and more. Um, and I, I'm you know I know Drew has as well. The um, there are more and more folks coming uh, with with not from the impact focus side of things, but who are looking for you know opportunities to invest in startups that are aiming to disrupt an antiquated system. And there's really nothing more antiquated in terms of a system than the, than the justice system and the legal system. And so the opportunity there is, is now's the right time, you know, to, to be getting involved in that. And, and there are, you know, with AI, I mean, obviously, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's like, it's such an obvious thing to say, but, uh, you know, everyone's turning to that as a way to figure out how we can 
close these gaps of equity, but also, you know, I mean, there's a significant ROI potential as well uh, due to the market size and the, and the misconnect, the disconnect at the moment between um, people who need to want to deliver those services and um, those who want to consume them. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, and maybe both of you can comment on this or, or, or whoever feels most aligned to the question here. So, you know, I think to your point, so the AI is a really interesting conversation and um, I am going to throw in a, a surprise blockchain question in here as well. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, AI is interesting because on one side, you have a justice conversation about the threats and harms of AI. On the other side, you have technology and legal conversation about the benefits of AI in in, in evolving in a system that's basically antiquated using paper, tracking things in kind of ways that maybe are not as secure and safe. So talk me through that like dual-sided coin, you know, the, the two-sided kind of argument there and like how how is that making you think about the kind of companies you have participate in the accelerator given some of that reality? Uh yeah, so let me let me start by saying I guess I take a pretty broad view of of what justice technology means, and for me it means anything that's going to increase the delivery of legal services, so more people are getting it, right? And if we look at AI, it's a perfect example where now instead of having to hire a first year associate at a big firm at God knows what their rates are now, 600, 700. I don't know what it is. I can't afford it. Um, but now, instead of doing that, you could spin up a pretty simple LLM and have it answer those same questions or generate the first brief of, of a response to an inquiry you got. And it's just making that more available to folks. And it, it's, it's really, really perfectly situated for legal because legal has been, it's highly regulated, right? Only lawyers in the U.S., can provide legal services. And there's no clear definition of what that means. Mm -hmm. So one of the really fun things about this space is being able to sort of push those boundaries and make sure that we're trying to get legal access to more folks. And I know Maya has thought a lot about the regulation of this space and, and what we should be doing there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds like it's a kind of a, it's a tricky, it's a, it's kind of an interesting way in which you identify justice and kind of what that means as the definition is evolving. I mean, I think we think about this in the impact space. Um, if you think about traditional impact, I would say, I always say like old and new impact. So old impact is like green tech, sustainability is straightforward, it's climate, it's energy. And you have yeah. new impact, which is social impact, it's BIPOC, right? This kind of this changing or evolving definition. And so I think the justice category is kind of sitting somewhere similarly where it's an evolving definition that incorporates more folks, which I think also shifts the impact investor from kind of this philanthropic plus mindset yeah. to a really an, an investor kind of um, a little bit more of the merger or at least a third way of both of those mindsets of kind of growth versus impact and kind of more of a, a combined approach. Is that what you're seeing, Maya? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I mean, it's just, you know, there, I mean, with respect to AI specifically, um, there's a, you know, there's a big sort of inside baseball debate going on as to whether or not we quote unquote, let people use AI on their own to, to, to get through their legal issue, you know, the legal issue or situation that they're involved with, or whether there should always be a quote, you know, interested and, you know, intermediary, um, mm -hmm trusted intermediary kind of that's a lawyer there. So 
you know, there are very intense debates going on on both sides about that. Um, the fact is, is it's already happening. Um, so what we need is partnerships. Um, uh, you know, the, the need is so vast that we need, you know, the need is so desperate that we need to come together and figure out ways for, for it to be actually, you know, ethical and, you know, within a framework that, that works because it's going to happen anyway, it's already happening. Um, and we need to make sure that there are, you know, guardrails around it. And that only comes from, from collaborating with folks that might otherwise find themselves kind of on the other on opposite sides of this particular issue. That all being said, what's, what it really comes down to for the startups in the space is that they are navigating a very, a, a totally vague set of, uh, set of, you know, the, there are no clear boundaries. And what we're also in seeing is some kind of early interest from um, investors that look to um, invest in companies that will be bumping up against regulatory um, issues like Uber, um, you know, who they were invested in specifically because they were challenging a set of regulatory um, constraints. Uh, I mean, that's my very outsider perspective on why they were invested in. But um, uh and so, you know, there's there there are also a group of investors that are looking for companies that are, you know, sustain su sustaining themselves via hopefully accelerators like ours, and they are going from there to um, to challenging these very antiquated um, sets of regulations that are vague and and really, uh, you know, they are one of the main reasons JTA exists is to help kind of clear the roadblocks, and that's one of the main roadblocks that they experience. Yeah. If I can jump in here, Maya, you said one thing that I really want to highlight here, and that is the fact that there's this debate going on on whether we should use AI to, to let people answer their questions. And, and you made the point, people are doing it already. People are going to open up ChatGPT and be like, I just got an eviction notice. What should I do? Right? Yeah. And ChatGPT will have some sort of guardrails. It'll be like, hey, we're not providing legal advice, but it's going to give you something right there. And what that tells me is there's a huge untapped market right here. Right? If people are going to be using this because they can't afford a lawyer, we need to figure out a way that we can actually utilize that and get this help to those folks and do it in a way that's going to be smart and, and still have some guardrails there. But we need to figure out how that can happen. And I think that this accelerator is a great chance for companies to really push those boundaries. I love it. So sometimes the, the most, uh, from the outside, the most like uninteresting uh, areas of industry are like the most fascinating actually because they are usually like the what they're like the sleeping giant really they're like underpinning a lot of society they're kind of you know space is super cool right but you need the regulatory becomes a really important part of that and, you know this legal kind of yeah. touches all aspects of our life right mm. um, there's a, so, yeah i mean as uh one of my favorite things ever to mention is uh, a good friend of mine cat moon who's a professor of law at vanderbilt university always says that law is the OS of human society. And with that, and it touches literally everybody. Um, yeah. And and it is also not equitably, you know, access to your rights is not equitably distributed. <laughs> it's very inequitable um, in delivery, in, in information delivery, um, in, in, you know, being able to get a just result. Um, and so these companies are out there, you know, just trying to survive. <laughs> and with all of this very, you know, muddied um, world that they're living in, just because they're the front runners. Um, but it's, you know, people are catching on very quickly to the fact that this is just a huge area of, of opportunity for impact and, you know, investment.
Exactly. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about, so you shared a little bit, Maya, about your kind of how you got here in your background. So I, I want to kind of ask you some stuff and feel free, Maya, also to chime in as well. So I know you both were lawyers <laughs> for a few years and then moved into tech. And so I saw, Drew, uh, that you worked at a company called Swift Council. Um, and I just wanted to know, as, as an entrepreneur yourself, in that, you know, particularly in that context, you know, what was the journey and like what were the lessons learned from that? Yeah. Uh, so Swift Council is a company that I started, I think it was 2010. And the backstory of that, it's right after sort of the financial crisis. I was working at a big law firm then. Um, I got laid off probably in 2009. Um, got a nice severance package. And my wife at the time was working in Uganda. So I flew over there. I lived with her and had like four months of severance where I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I came up with this idea. And basically the idea is there were tons of really highly skilled, highly experienced lawyers who were looking for work then on one side. And on the other side, you had law firms and companies who were skittish to hire. So I created a marketplace where they could connect uh, on a project basis. But of course, I, I sort of develop all that. I'm getting it set up. And then we come back to San Francisco and being the risk averse lawyer that I was, I got a job offer from a small law firm. And I was like, well, I probably should go do that and, and make sure I can take care of my family but I couldn't shake that bug. So I, I worked at that firm for about a year and then I finally took the plunge and I started Swift Council. Love building it, it was amazing. Um, the first couple years, I had a great time doing it. We were growing well. The interesting thing at that time though, I, was, I went out and tried to raise money and mm -hmm. everybody I talked to is like, this is crazy that legal tech wasn't a thing then, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. like, this is a law firm. Why would I invest in a law firm? Nobody's gonna do that. Um, and I just missed the window by like two or three years because a couple years down the road, there were other companies doing the same thing who got tons of investment and they just ate my lunch. Um, so that's, that's my failure story. But that was great because it led me to UC Hastings, UC Law, San Francisco. Uh, and I've been teaching there since then. No, I mean, that's, I mean I, that's a beautiful story because um, more people fail than succeed in startup land. I think people kind of forget that. And then also it's like, it's, it's really important. Some of the best MDs, of the best accelerators in the country are all folks who have built companies to some degree, bought them, sold them, whatever. Uh, and, and that experience really helped inform how they support companies in the program. Um, are there any particular lessons that you learned that you apply kind of in your work today? Uh, sure, it comes for me, it comes back to this talk about regulating the legal space. I was so conservative when I set up that company. So I, I remember I was doing like SEO optimization and there was no clear term for it, for what I was providing. So one of the terms, though, was a contract attorney, right? I will, will place a contract attorney with your company on a project basis. But because I was putting out contract attorney, I was getting tons of leads from consumers who wanted help with their contracts. And there is, in, in legal, there, uh, there's a rule against sharing fees with a non-lawyer. So because I had set up Swift Counsel as a company, I couldn't take those clients and share fees with my company. So I was really, really like hands off. I didn't want to run afoul of any state bar associations. And I think if I had pivoted then and figured out a way that I could have actually gotten those clients and figured out a way to run my company with them, uh, that would have been great. So I think for me, the lesson is you can't, and it's a great lesson for law students, right? Because everybody comes in, we're teaching them the parade of horribles. And if you do something wrong, uh, the state bar is going to come down on you. The Justice Department is going to come down on you. 
And I think what I'm trying to teach my students is you have to take a step back and learn how to work within those rules. I'm not advocating anybody go out and deliberately break laws, right? But you have to figure out how you can work with those because especially in the justice tech space, when you're trying to help people, you know, there were people who were reaching out to me for help with, with really simple contracts uh, and they, they were doing it because we were charging way less than, than a full-time lawyer would charge. I wish I could have helped those people then. So I'm trying, trying to rectify that now with this accelerator. Well, that may, I mean, that makes, I think, a lot of sense. You know, one of the things I think about a lot as someone who, you know, has built things, you know, has kind of constantly kind of been in the entrepreneurial space, and I have a little bit more of a bias for action, kind of, which is, you know, a little bit more risk appetite, all the kind of founder kind of uh, ethos things, um, is that as much as you have a timeline to success, you have a timeline to failure. And so that decision making to your point of like, how risk averse am I in this moment where maybe I should be pivoting? Like, do I have enough signal to know like, hey, I'm kind of hitting my head against the wall here, trying to force what I want it to be versus hearing what it actually is. And I think yeah. a lot of founders really struggle with that, particularly in highly regulated industries, where it's really hard to feel comfortable to kind of move and flex a little bit, right? So, you know, I could understand completely why you have some concern or fear about that. And if the timing isn't there, then the market isn't really supporting the behavior either, right? So there's no like space to be like, I'm gonna try this, because right, because no one's really doing that. So that that I can see being really challenging in this space. Um and so I don't and my I don't know, you shared a little bit of your story as well. Did you want to add anything to kind of how you went from why you really went from legal to tech, um, and kind of what that journey has been? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, pretty common story. I mean, I, I was practicing, um, and I realized I didn't really want to be a partner in a law firm. I wanted to do something broader and more creative and, you know, sharper, you know, I, my, you know, priorities were coming into sharper focus. I had a young family. I wanted to just have a different life <laughs> than, than partners in law firms typically do. And, um, and I saw, you know, and I, I grew up here in Silicon Valley. And so tech is always all around me. And I certainly not one of the folks that thinks that tech's, tech will solve everything. But um, it did kind of come naturally to me to just jump over to start working in legal tech. I was kind of the voice of the end user in many um, different um, kind of businesses, um, approaching different areas of the business and practice of law. Um, but I didn't have an engineering degree. <laughs> so I just spent uh, time really trying to educate folks internally on how lawyers actually work and how they can consume. Um, it was kind of sad, you know, honestly, like it's, it's hard to tell people all the time, like, look, like you, their job is not to understand the technology. In fact, technology often will get in the way. Mm. Um, and so um, that's one of the, I mean, I'm, and then Next Law Labs found me just as it was getting off the ground. It was the first tech-focused innovation catalyst founded by a law firm back in 2015. And, um, you know, we had an investment arm, Next Law Ventures, and that happened just as we started, um, uh, just as legal tech, tech started coming up, really. So when we founded Next Law Labs, there were 70 legal tech startups. And I would say now there's probably four or 5,000. So in the course of five years, we vetted over 500 um, legal tech companies, both for, for kind of implementation internally at the law firm, mm -hmm. as well as um, to invest as part of our investment arm, Next Law Ventures. And so we built a portfolio of all early stage startups. You know, I mean, everything was just exploding all around us. Um, and all that, that whole time, I was like, this is great. I love it. I'm learning a lot. And I know how to be a good startup advisor and how to help them grow. 
um, internally um, at, and work with you know adoption and, and all that kind of stuff, but also internally, but also out, out in the marketplace as it was kind of changing so rapidly. Um, but my heart, you know, I, I went to law school, as I said, to have a broader social impact. So this has always been in the back of my mind. Um, and so the impact uh, side of things is, again, I mean, there will never be enough lawyers to meet the need. And mm. therefore, um, that's why I say, I always say technology can and should be part of the solution. Um, we have it. We need to have it be accessible and reliable and ethical uh, for those that either can't afford attorneys or don't want to. You know, I mean, there are plenty of people who could afford it, but would rather have a no contest divorce, you know, DIY divorce. Um, and there are great mm -hmm. solutions out there for that. You know, so um, they're they're encountering some of the challenges mm -hmm. we talked about anyway. I know I've gotten off tangent, but no, no, you're fine. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, really? I'm, I'm, like, I'm just listening. I'm like, OK, I'm learning new things. Yeah, yeah. No, so I mean, you know, so, you know, we've, we've that, you know, I, I, my goal is a more just society. And this is a way that I, I really hooked into um, and something I really enjoy doing. Um, and Drew, I'm sure, is so, so tired of all my emails. <laughs> I'm like, what about this idea? What about this idea? I'm kind of known for crazy ideas. Sometimes they're good ones. I'm sure they're always good ones. But with that being said, you know, Drew, I think just shared a little bit about his journey and, um, and kind of the skills he he's learned and, and kind of applied. And so you just shared about the work you're doing with um, with the lab. And so I know you were ahead of growth there. And so can you just talk a little bit about what that role really entails? And what do you think companies are kind of missing when it comes to how they think about growth? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what, so, uh, when I, and I was head of growth, it was a small operation, you know, a small shop within the largest law firm in the world. So, um, what we did mostly was work with our portfolio companies, um, both the next law ventures portfolio companies in which we had invested, um, as well as uh, it, for equity, as well as sort of next law labs, um, portfolio, which was companies we hadn't invested in, but we're working very closely and collaboratively with on internal um, transformation initiatives within the firm. So implementing them. Um, so that in the sense that, you know, the referral, that that's kind of how the kind of that little world flowed together. Um, Next Law Labs itself was, was founded to catalyze innovation in, you know, like, as I like to say, one of the, one, it's not an industry that hasn't changed much since the Magna Carta. So, um, I mean, it's not an exaggeration. So until, you know, until recently. So, um, so what I was doing was mostly just, you know, helping with those, with the, with those companies and those, those big initiatives. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. And that's super, that's super helpful. So, and so what are you thinking that folks, if you think about startups that you're talking to now, you know, often as what I see is like, um, they don't, maybe fundamentally, I think they don't understand growth is what I kind of see. When you're super early, you just have like these wild expectations of what the growth pace needs to be because you feel like you have to hit some kind of um, growth rate or you just feel like the startup's urgency, the ecosystem is like, you know, fail fast and they kind of just like churn and burn. Like that's the energy, right? So like, they're just like, is that aggressiveness? Um, but I feel like that's actually kind of opposite. If you talk to people who do growth as a, as a job, as an industry, as a business craft, that's not what they're saying. They're like, oh, some pragmatism oh, yeah. would be helpful. So <laughs> I'd love to hear yeah. like what your thoughts are there. 
I mean, totally. So, I mean, we, you know, we, we always, I mean, we were among the most patient investors, I will say, <laughs> at Next Law Ventures of, of people that were, that, you know, were on particular cap tables. We, uh, I think it was because we had such an, in um, deep understanding of the difficulties, to be honest with you, of, mm -hmm. of um, the sales, super sales, slow sales cycles and um, having, um, you know, adoption issues, having mm -hmm. to deal with, the productivity paradox, which is essentially, um, if you know, if two lawyers, if if one lawyer takes two hours to do something and one lawyer takes six hours to do something, the client's going to like the first one, and the partner, the boss, is going to like the second one because it generates additional income. And so, you know, when you're talking about efficiency, it is unfortunately a very serious <laughs> topic of conversation that it is not always. On, you know, um, a benefit. So you have to kind of, uh, I think you have to really have a deep understanding of what the the day-to-day -day is um, for folks that are potentially, you know, going to be implementing the technology. With respect to the justice tech space, I mean, we have a lot of um, our, you know, entrepreneurs that have lived experience with the problem they're trying to solve. Um, those create the best solutions um, most often. So, um, because they have such a deep understanding of what what went wrong and what should be changed um, and how it can be changed. And it's really not that hard in a lot of situations, just got to have the bandwidth to build um, build your company. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I mean, obviously the accelerator is part of that, but you know my, my ultimate goal is for us to, for this sector to have a venture studio. Because what we need is to be able to support these early stage entrepreneurs who typically, you know, get, you know, you know, two percent or less of all VC funding every year, um, and help them have the opportunity to, um, you know, take a year with a salary to build their their excellent ideas into something that the accelerator would then take on, right? Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> a, a real pipeline um, yeah. for these. That makes sense of sense. I mean, a lot of firms are starting studios and, you know, even with what you're talking about with the underrepresented group, I mean, the reality is like they are functionally, demographically, not that underrepresented collectively. And what you find out is that the future of opportunity is a is just a much more diverse pool of people to be able to access those new opportunities as one part of the market gets saturated, right? And so you, from a business perspective, it just kind of makes kind of better business sense than it perhaps um used to. And I really love that comment about the uh, productivity uh, paradox, because, you know, I don't remember the book was like, what the text eating the world or it's just eating the world or whatever they're saying. And, and when you realize that so the majority of businesses in the US are service based businesses, right? So you have this really sensitive experience of trying to be cutting edge and competitive. So you have to have some efficiencies, while still having jobs and, and 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 career and people that can build careers and in this like really sensitive intersection about you know around human experience really right how we as a populace do things together um incorporating all these different kind of bits and baubles of how we think the world should work um it's a, it's a really it's a really hard thing and it, it, it you know tech ate the the journalism and I mean there's still new journalism but it really it really ate the newspaper industry right and so and and perhaps to the legal industry or even big consulting like you might be seeing some of the same behavior being like oh this is kind of eating at our margin like in a material way when our margin's super lean anyway because there's people work 
right? And so you're gonna see a lot of companies and then you end up with this larger economic conversation about the middle class and, and uh, you know, eating all the businesses and the middle class and all that money moving up. And so it, it becomes yeah. very, you know, people oftentimes don't, you know, think like I'm not in tech, so I don't really have to, and I'm like, oh, it impacts every area of your life. Mm. Yeah. It's like, it, it, I, you know, I think climate's a huge conversation. I think it's like environment, like the probably the biggest conversation, but I think a fast follow is tech because I think everything that we're doing is enabled by technology. And I think it has more of a weirdly more impact on people's daily lives sometimes than, than even the climate conversation. And, and I don't think folks are talking about it because they feel like I'm not part of that world. I don't, I'm not, I don't work for Google. I'm not an engineer. So it's 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 nothing new with me. And you're like, but you Uber. Yeah, you, you know, do. You do you work know. for Google. Everybody yeah. that uses Google for sure. works for Google. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like the the classic story of the frog not realizing it's getting boiled, right? It's true for climate and it's true for tech. Like we are getting more and more immersed in in both of those worlds and the, and the problems that come with it. So yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really, it, it's an interesting time. I love this country. Okay, so I want to talk just really about the program uh, briefly, just kind of like brass tacks, like. You talked a little bit, Drew, about how it works. Want to kind of dig in a little bit, like how long is the program? How many participants? You know, what do they receive? Um, is it hybrid? Like just all the components of the program. And feel free, Maya, Drew. Sure. Yeah. So we have eight incredible companies that are part of the program this fall. Mm -hmm. It's a 13 week program. So we run it at the same time that that our law school semester is running. And there's also a complimentary class for our law students. So, I, so these are all, all the companies are external to UC Law SF. But we're also teaching a class called Building a Justice Tech Startup that just our law students are doing. And we have 10 students in that class. Um, and they are trying to come up with ideas to address the, the access to justice gap. Um, right now, they're breaking up into teams. They're figuring out their ideas. And each week, that class meets once weekly. Uh, we talk about that. So next week, we're talking about the unauthorized practice of law, which is exactly those regulatory hurdles that, that we're worried about. Um, so we have that running alongside the accelerator. So all of the companies in the accelerator have access to that class. They can join. Uh, it is a hybrid program. So I think all of the companies this time, one is in San Francisco, the rest are around the country, but they can zoom in and join that class. Uh, it builds up. We also have weekly accelerator meetings and it's all building up to a demo day on Tuesday, November 13th, I think. Uh, where the companies will all get together in San Francisco and, and pitch to a room full of investors and, and a judging panel. The other cool thing about that one is it actually starts with a pitch competition from the students in, in our class where they will, instead of taking a final, a boring old law school final where they're just going to write in a blue book or on their laptop, they actually get a five-minute pitch and that's their final. Um, okay. So that's, that's how our program works. <laughs> To be a kid in 2023, I wish. <laughs> Better oh than when God. I was in law school. I wish I right? <laughs> um, Mike, do you want anything about the program, about kind of how it works, or how you're thinking about sourcing, or how you you know vet or look at companies? Well, I will love. I Drew, <laughs> Drew knows I love to mention that we received more applications for this cohort than any previous cohort at Lex Lab. Um, which I think shows um, just not only a lot of interest but also a lot of need. Um, for, for folks to come together that are, you know, focused on, you know, there, there are some, there, there is plenty of overlap um, with, you know, all startups have, you know, certain, certain types of challenges and, and kind of things they have to figure out and vet. 
but then there are very unique challenges um, that that folks in building companies in this sector are um, are are experiencing and for them to be able to come together and learn from each other, I think that's another benefit I see, you know, all the time is that they, you know, those relationships go well beyond um, the cohort. Um, and also they, in, in many times they're, they're at J, over at JTA on the Slack channel too. Um, and, um, and so I think it's really important to know how, how big, you know, basically this, this is the first and only um, kind of opportunity for, for justice tech companies to come together. There was a fellowship uh, put together by Village Capital last year, which I helped with, uh, which had some very similar um, uh, types of arrangements. But um, beyond that, we've got, you know, we, we need to keep doing more of these to support these companies. Yeah. And getting back sort of, you asked about the brass tax. So I, I did want to say like our program is totally free. We, we don't ask for any equity. We're not charging any rent. There's no program fees. The only thing I ask from the companies to, is to be engaged with our students in our community. And what that often looks like is our students will end up serving as interns for these companies, which is great. The companies are getting really cheap labor and the students are getting experience that they wouldn't otherwise get in law school. Um, and, and, you know, another, the, the value adds for the companies, right? We're, as an accelerator, we're never going to compete with the YCs, right? Mm -hmm. But because this is a bit of a niche in legal tech, we can provide access and network that other accelerators can't, right? So we have a broad alumni network. And one thing we can do is if we have a company that's working on divorce issues or working in family law, we can connect them with all of our alumni who are in the family law space and give them those warm leads. Um, so that's one big value add to all the companies. I think this is a really wonderful model because so, you know, a lot of universities have their own programs like you have, like with LexLab, for example. And um, I had a company last week who's partnering with BCG and they are an external partner similar to GTA, but they were kind of um, doing that project with uh, BCG at the corporate level. But I think we're going to see a lot more universities kind of doing this model where they're partnering with an external organization to kind of um, help with uh, program support, bringing in, um, you know, mentor speakers, helping with a, a kind of, assessment and, and, and vetting of applicants, um, and then really leveraging um, the university for all these other resources that they have. Because just like universities, I mean, back in the day, and they still are research universities, the ones that put new ideas out into the world, you know, they're kind of oddly late to the party on the innovation side when it yeah. comes to the tech, like yeah. corporate kind of took that and was like, we're Amazon, we're going to do a bunch of accelerators and did it. But like, I feel like university is like, oh, no, no, no. We are still supposed to be the arbiters of kind of whatever version of truth we think is important to the world and setting a stage. And so we want to make sure we have companies that kind of reflect our values, what we think the future holds as, as, we, as a research institution, right? So I, I think what you guys are doing is probably a really good um, case study for other universities in terms of how that partnership comes together, really, um, which is yeah. really interesting. For sure. And I think it's super important in the in the legal industry, because I do think with with generative AI, you know, you, you were going to ask a question about blockchain. And that was sort of the word du jour a couple years ago. And, and now it's generative AI. But I, I really do feel like this is going to fundamentally change the way that legal services are provided. And we as a law school need to be thinking about how are we going to teach our students to be lawyers and utilize those tools in two, three, 10 years. Um, so, and there's also a bandwidth issue on our, on our side, right? I, I would love to teach and research and write and also run the accelerator, but it's impossible to do it all. So it's great that 
Maya exists and brings the JTA and, and collaborates with us and brings these amazing organizations. So it's, it's really been wonderful. Yeah, and no, for sure. I, so I have kind of one closing question for you guys. And um, I, so in terms of the program, I know it's new. What do you think that you've gotten right about this program, whether it's the program model or the, or the scope or, or whatnot? What do you think you've gotten right about it? Um, so I, I come back to what Maya said. We got more applicants for this Justice Tech Accelerator than I have for the previous five cohorts. Uh, so I think there is a huge demand for this. Um, and then I go back to what Maya was saying about how people are using ChatGPT now to solve their legal problems. And they're doing it in an unregulated way. There's a huge market need for these legal services. And I think that we are starting to be the bridge that's going to figure out how to connect the entrepreneurs interested in helping those folks and the folks who are out there bumbling around on ChatGPT or Google or BARD or wherever. And, and we want to help those folks find the right answers. Maya, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I would add, I think that that uh, another thing that has been just, we, has been a gift for us has been the interest that we've seen from, from external organizations who want to support. I mean, there's, of course, Generator and Village Capital who are helping immensely in terms of uh, very targeted um, curriculum and support for, for this sector, but also there are, there's myriad other organizations um, that are that are supporting in different ways because they see the need for the development and the discussion to continue and grow around opportunities to to bridge the access to justice gap via technology. So um, because I think we're just the first ones out there, um, there's been a lot of interest in, um, in in wanting to support us. And so we're, you know, we have room for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, very like market model. signal. Yeah. So yeah. Mar the market signal is strong, right? Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, I think on, on top of that, it's like, uh, you really have the right, the right folks involved in, de you know, demand. If your demand is high, you always can solve for supply, right? <laughs> but the fact that the demand is high is really a good tell that you're yeah. onto something meaningful. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, I mean, as I said, I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's, it's deliberately an inclusive model yeah. um, because there are so many interested parties in um, wanting to see invested and wanting to see the success of initiatives like this. Um, and we and and you know while some other types of initiatives can be very kind of very focused, uh, what we're trying to do is bring in as many people as possible um, and and see the the opportunity. So we are deliberately trying to um, make sure that um, not only that that the program um, is successful, but also that the the individual startups, of course, can can leverage the the broader and more inclusive ecosystem. Yeah, and I think we've no better partners than you guys because you guys know everyone in the world. So I feel like you guys will have will be very set up for success. I wish uh, I wish through this program, uh, through the work that you guys have already done. So, um, so thank you so much. I know it's a little bit quiet here, folks. Will, I can send questions, um, post uh, the listening to the podcast and live um, to acceleratorinsider at gmail.com. And we can always send those questions along um, to GTA to um, kind of help resolve any outstanding items that you guys might have when you listen to this uh, amazing, amazing podcast. So I want to say thank you so much to Maya and Drew for joining me today. And this is another episode of Accelerator Insider. Bye, guys.